Welcome to episode seven of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is about mortgages and the morality of mortgages and all things connected to them. It should be a lot of fun because we've already been having a bit of... um, interesting discussion before we (laughs) rumbling yes in terms of let's get ready to rumble um i'm your host peter holmes and today i'm joined by renee cola ryan my co-host and professor in philosophy at the university of notre dame so good to be here indeed and cormac mccann philosopher sports fan of sorts i say of sorts because he's not really into afl and my (laughs) co-host today (laughs) and actually i I actually i did play afl for a few years aussie rules rules, not afl yeah Yeah, that's right i've been told off by a few victorian friends (laughs) afl is not the sport it's the competition (laughs) of the elite yes afl is the top level so yes. yes In the world, if we were Americans, we'd call it the World Championship, meaning no one else in the whole world plays it, but <laughs> except us. Okay. Um, Sorry, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> the producer is shaking uh, his head. I, I was just going to say, uh, baseball, maybe Canada's involved with that. <laughs> <laughs> ice hockey. Don't they have World Championship ice hockey in Canada? Oh, yeah. I forget about ice hockey. <laughs> <laughs> I see my uh, dad now shaking his fist at the speaker. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just upset because we don't have enough ice to make ice hockey really serious here. Aussies, yeah, we just, ice? (laughs) (laughs) Not that kind of ice. What have you been up to, Cormac? Well, I thought relevant to today's topic, it's very timely that we're talking about this because uh, we just uh, bought our first home. Congratulations. Do you mean that, Renee? <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll get into that. We will get into that. I'm happy for your happiness, but is it justly yes. placed? There yes. you go. Well, we can yeah. talk about that. But yeah, yeah it's, and that's been pretty exciting. And and dealing with the whole process, the back end of you know applying for a mortgage, securing the the property, mm. doing the property negotiation, working out what we can afford, and you know compromising on things like location and dwelling quality in order to get the price into sure. where we can you know to, to to what we can afford. So yeah, it'd be interesting to to dive into some of that and the experience that I've had there. Right. What about you, Renee? Apart from being happy for Cormac, what else have you been up to? (laughs) Uh, Well, we just started teaching uh, first semester, uh, sorry, second semester of this year, a couple of days ago. So everything has been geared up toward that, Um, getting everyone happily teaching. I must say that as the dean of the school, I'm always relieved when staff start teaching again because (laughs) it means that they're, (laughs) you know, thinking about teaching. (laughs) And not about all the other things that they think I should be doing. So this is great. <laughs> one of the things that uh, – I'll just reflect on that. One of the things that students often do is they come back from their break and say, did you have a nice break? Mm. And I say, you're mad. Mm. You're mad. In universities, we do not We have work breaks. harder when the students are yeah, there. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It, it's, it's got there's to no do – I think the administrators uni. leave us alone when there's students around because they've got their own students to deal with. No, so. they never leave us alone, Peter. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I just ignore them. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Okay. <laughs> Today's topic is mortgage and morality, so let's dive right in. We should begin by defining what we're talking about here. It's not just about people who want to take a mortgage. It's about why mortgages even exist, uh, whether they're done well. It's not whether they should exist at all. It's also whether they're done well. Um, The price of houses seems to require most of us to take a mortgage these days. And so most people either have to choose actively for a mortgage if they want a house. And the question of getting a mortgage seems to be tied very 
intimately with the idea of even home ownership. It's there's almost nobody who assumes you can own a home without a mortgage. It's absurd uh, in there. A very small percentage of the population yes. can even think in those terms. That's right. And and so also what moral issues do mortgages raise because it's not just that, for instance, Cormac's just taken a mortgage. It's not just that, but that affects all of your relationships and your living arrangements and Mm. your relationship with your family, uh, what you can do in life, what you can get up, you know, what choices you can make. And also uh, my my rent, I rent and and have rented in Sydney for the last 20 years or so. And um, I think, Renee, you're renting as well? Yep. Definitely and, renting, and those those prices, the the rental prices are directly affected by mortgages because mm. even if the rental property I'm in isn't mortgaged, so in other words, my the owner of the property is not mortgaged, it he's setting his price based on what all of the other properties are set on, which is the, based on the mortgage that they have to pay back. So That's all right. of the prices are set by whatever that mortgage is, mm. and so what if something happens to mortgages, everything changes. Or if we if we try to challenge the idea of mortgages, it seems like it's the same question as whether or not you should own a home. We'd have to say straight away, the basic principle of um, a mortgage seems sound morally without looking into the details of how it goes because if I am a person who can't just come up with a million dollars in my back pocket, regrettably I don't have that sort of cash lying around, um, my wife would tell you that if I ever did, it would go very quickly because I'd end up giving it to someone who needed it. <laughs> so just, but um, the point is that I don't have that lying around. And so the only way any ordinary person can get to the stage where they own a home is to ask someone who's got money to lend them some money. So uh, it might be in a hypothetical situation, perhaps way back in the day, that a family might get together and loan someone a you know, one of the the young kids some money or everyone pitches in and tries to help out and then they eventually pay it back or they just help out in some way by helping them put a deposit on or something. But the reality is for most of us is that you have to take out one of these quite large mortgages. And I think the average price in Sydney is well is over a million now. It is. Yeah. So, and that's not the sort of money you can have just lying around, especially not with the, the wages simply don't keep up with that level of mortgage. Let's just discuss that firstly. Do you think that's the reality of it, that, that you absolutely have to have a mortgage and even if you can't, if you choose not to have a mortgage, your whole life and the price of housing is affected by mortgages? Yeah, totally. As I'd say it's for 99.5% of Australians anyway, it mm. might be fractionally less, but I'd say it's about that. Couldn't afford to buy a home outright. Mm. You know, almost everyone has to, you know, leverage it somewhere, securitize it some way through uh, a lender. Uh, and you mentioned before, way back when, that, some people can might have you know pulled together as a community or gotten help from mum and dad. These days, prices really are so unaffordable that you actually are looking at a combination of all three to get That's your foot right. on the ladder. Yep. Yeah. You're looking at the bank of mum and dad to either yeah. help you get to that yep. magical twenty percent deposit, yeah. um, or you know the uh, for example, uh, Lebanese communities are really good at this. They pull the money together and they buy units yep. and different things, and hmm. different family members get their turn, kind of thing. Yeah. And, they, and they play long term, and but there's often a mix of yep. you know family support yep. and then a lender to be able to even have a chance of getting on the property ladder. And then, of course, you've got to compete with everyone else that's doing that. So lots of people talk about, well, you know, you should be able to get the reward of really hard work. And if you work at something, yeah, that's true. You do have to work hard, but there is a certain amount of sort of starting point you need to even have that leg up. Like, for instance, I came out of a situation of poverty, so I just never had money. And then I became a Catholic and... um, you know, the Lutherans weren't terribly happy with that. And so mm. there, in the terms of the transition, there wasn't a lot of money that came that way. In fact, I was I was um, 
uh, charged money by the Lutherans legally and they sued me for it. So Ooh. basically we started on the back foot as Catholics and, and I also work for the Catholic Church, not renowned for paying massive salaries. Um, I get a tip for that. <laughs> and, and so basically I don't think I'll ever own a home if I were playing by the normal rules and I don't have a, a wealthy family to, to hand me stuff or not that I've ever asked for it, hmm. but um, there's just simply not the opportunity for some people. It has to be said though, that even though I, I will never own a home or perhaps I will, but not through those regular through things. Through miraculous means It and could be through miraculous means. You and I and our families may own homes it, one day. It may, it may, may come about. The, the question I'm is, counting on my kids earning a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but this is interesting. I, when, when, we, when we did marriage counselling courses a long time ago, back in the former life, that one of the people who used to come was a, was a, a financial consultant hmm. person who didn't have, wasn't trying to push them into particular programs, but had an idea that if you can get generational involvement, so you have older people often with a lot of, lot of um, assets and, and like lump sum amounts to their name, but no income. Then you have the, the, the middle range mums and dads who have income, reasonably serious income, but lots of expenditure and lots of- And um, no assets. And mm. no assets. And then you have the young people, usually if they're just coming into their work life, lots of disposable income, no assets, and usually nowhere to put it that's <laughs> of good nature. If you put those three generations together, you can actually put together a really serious sort of effort to buy something. Because you've got well, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, and so yeah. He, he was saying basically the way around the current trap is to is to um, beat Pool. the system by pooling in resources, yeah, yeah, yeah. and basically it relies on you be able to, being able to cope with living with all these people. And you well, you also have to be able to liquidate assets. So my yes. family has assets are the family farm. Right. Mm. I mean, what do we do? Sell a family farm so that a family in Sydney can buy a million dollar property that's completely overpriced and you all that's can't live in. That's completely unethical. Yes, that's right. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. So okay, firstly. It has to be said, though, that housing prices um, are set in certain ways by how much the banks will lend us. I'd say that's actually almost exclusively how they're set. There's a big kind of discussion like with, with the old kind of Keynesian model of economics that housing prices are determined by the interaction of demand and supply. Mm. How many houses are there versus how many people want to buy them? Actually, the, the, the real truth of the matter is from the research I've done anyway, is it seems to be that it it is almost entirely determined by how much a bank is prepared to lend you yes. because it seems that people will turn up and they will put an offer in of as much as they possibly can possibly can. get yep. their hands right. on. Yep. And this is where I think one of the big issues lies is the nature of yep. financial institutions, yes. who they lend to, how they screen people, yes. how do yeah. they work out, okay, how do they what what system of of checks and balances do they use to yes. ensure that you can afford to to the application to pay process? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so and we've seen that change radically, and we can talk about that a little bit. But I'll mm. I'll put a little uh, note in here. I, I probably might sound you know very enthusiastic uh, you know, on, on different points, and I'll mention that I uh, the only reason I'm no I'm no property expert, but I, I certainly. I'm a bit of a property addict. Uh, right. Uh, a big fan of the, the Property Couch podcast. It's very, very cool. Uh, it's not a, not a, not <laughs> a direct a shout, shout out? out. It's not a, it's not a shout out, but it is, it <laughs> it's is not cool. a shout out. And I also, out. for some reason, found myself scoring in the top 6% of uh, realestate.com users. Congratulations. Uh, which is actually a mm. sign of that I need help. Right. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, well, we have to have a podcast on addicts. Addiction. Addicts. Yeah, and, yeah, that's and, right. And, that's yeah. right. <laughs> you can feature me and be like, what's your addiction? Um, the property app. Yes. <laughs> help. Mine is coffee. It's easy. Can I put to you, I, I actually have a different perspective on this, quite apart from the moral objections I'm about, about to raise. I worked for a major bank, one of my first main jobs. Okay, will you name them? 
I won't. You don't uh, on this podcast. Are they one of the big four? Can I they ask are. That? Okay. They are. And in fact, it was it was very interesting because I was working for them and I was one of their best salesmen on the frontline teller thing. So they put me into loans briefly, and I was removed from loans because I kept knocking people back on the basis that it wasn't a just imposition on their life, the amount of money that the people were going to be lending them. Yeah. Now, there's, there's this kind of a magic ratio that people look, normally look at. About a third of your wage is about the maximum you should be having to pay for this is this is not not a catholic moral stance it's actually just a generally accepted living standards thing that um, no more than a third of your disposable income should go towards what your living place um your place of residence does that include maintenance as well or is it just the mortgage everything everything and and this wow. tells you how far our current mortgage market has pushed well beyond that yeah. mark there you go. now they're going up you know last time i checked there was 50 to 60% in some cases yeah. and they're allowing people to take interest only loans to that level as well which means it's just it's literally setting them up to pay lots of money to the bank for 10 years and then get sold out from underneath because they can't pay it back anymore mm. it, it and it happened big in the 90s early 90s and then it kind of wound it back because the interest rates then were 17% or something crazy. And now you've got such low interest rates. As soon as you nudge them, the difference between 1% and 2% is massively mm. different from the difference between 16 and 17% because 1% and 2 is double the amount of interest you're paying. And on such a huge amount, like the million-dollar properties or more in Sydney, that's just going to crush people. And yet what the banks invest, the bank's interest in this whole thing is to make money, and they don't mind if they have to exchange properties many times um, as long as they're getting overall the money in because the business of the bank is not your welfare. They're not selling you the lifestyle. They're selling you a product where they their money makes money. Mm. So let's come to that because this is what, what I want to make point of. The Bible actually has a lot to say about money making money and the person who has a lot of cash or assets using their assets to exploit someone who doesn't have the assets. So if someone has the capacity to produce food and there's a beggar who doesn't have food and yet they can work, if the rich man exploits the poor man's vulnerability and makes him work for less than he's actually worth mm. and doesn't allow him to share in the in the all of the fruits of his labors, then the rich man is held accountable by God to say, you actually used your position of privilege and 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 to some extent luck, but sometimes even hard work, you used your wealth as a tool to exploit the poor and therefore you've you've actually you're answerable to god for that it's not that you've and some people would say oh but they helped the poor the poor couldn't get out of that situation without the rich man's help um just to use an extreme example there's the unnamed company again we're not naming companies who went to third world countries and sort of basically took over their water supply it was a filthy water supply it was causing certain illnesses but they put a lot of investment into purifying the water supply right then they sold the water back to the natives at prices the natives couldn't afford. Now, lots of human rights people said you can't you know, put price on water. It's just it's a basic living condition. Mm. You have to have what you can't put price on water. And the, the company said, well, we've invested all this money in it. We've made it a better thing. We've helped them out. We, we have a right to make a claim for a return on our investment. And if they don't, they don't have to buy it. They can go somewhere else. In fact, they can't. There's nowhere else to go. And they've been rightly called out in terms of moral uh, situation because they've used their assets and their ability to do things the others couldn't. 
and they've used it in such a way that they've exploited the the locals uh, in an I think it's an exploitative use of wealth. Now, in some respects, I would say the need to have a place to live is among those basic human needs. I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's one of the very basic ones. And would you agree philosophically, Renee, that absolutely, you know, the, the security and safety of a place to live is essential? It to is, think. it is. And especially for families. So mm. for us, it's been really important. We moved from Belgium to here yep. with nothing and needed to find a place to live. Yep. And it was not easy to find a place to live that was affordable. There was one hilarious moment when we realised that what was being charged, um, what we expected would be charged monthly because that, that was the way that it was in in Belgium was being charged weekly yes. here. Oh, wow. So yes. we thought, yep. oh, this is great. You know, it's pretty pretty <laughs> much comparable. And then we realised, oh, no, actually, it's weekly. we're paying four times the amount. <laughs> and that was a huge shock yes. of realisation. And with that came the shock of realisation that that was a situation that we'd probably never get out of. Yes. But at the same time, we've been really lucky in that our landlord, uh, our landlady rather, is fantastic. She's very family minded. Right. So we've had the security of being in a place with the rates only going up very slightly yep. every time we renew the contract. Uh, sorry, the the rent going up in accord with the local council rates. Right. Yep. So not every mm. landlady would do that. No. And she but she does. And for her it's kind of um this is a this is a house she's owned for a while. She's looking after her elderly mother the next street over. We live two houses away from her sister. So it's kind of like they've welcomed us into the family. Yeah. See, that's in a, a subsidiarity way. thing because yeah. she, because you know her, she's right there. Yeah. And, and if there's a human engagement between landlord and and um and person, there's often not always, but often a genuine human consideration yeah, of the right. circumstances. And, and we're very fortunate in, to invaluable. know our landlords as well. Mm. Yeah, that's and, right. And that's another story in itself. But yeah. the fact that the prices though, even the prices across the board, the ones that they call market prices, are set by the fact that a huge number of houses are investment properties. So a, a little bit of a stat is that about 10, 15 years ago, only about um, 10% at most of houses were investment, per, sorry, purchases in Sydney were investment purchases. Now we're up over 50%, 55% are, are investment purchases, purchases, not um, not homeowners. And so they, it's a, and I've been told by people who are wise in the, in the, the economic guru sort of range, mm. they say, oh, you, you should just buy a property and rent it out because it offsets the mortgage and you can work with that and then eventually you'll have enough to buy your own property. And my thought was all I'm doing in that case is passing on the injustice of the amount of interest I'm paying there yeah. onto somebody else. And the only thing I've achieved is I've shifted the immoral imposition of someone else onto the the renter. Now it's not me that's imposing it because I have to. There's a limit to how much I can be, give way, if you like, on rent because of the um, because of the way that the pressure the banks put on me. Um, but here's the question: I can't give way because let's pretend I've bought a property. I haven't, but let's say pretend I bought a property. I'm renting it to someone. I can't give way um, beyond what I can afford to with regards to the interest from paying back on the loan and all the other things. But who can give way? Who actually has so much insane profits? That, the banks? Yes. <laughs> this yeah. is what I'm saying. There's actually no harm, no foul, except, and this is this is an interesting thing, I think even the banks are under their own pressures because when I was in a an unnamed one of the big four <laughs> banks, 
I witnessed internally where four banks were doing more or less the same things and then one of the banks decided to do something I think is immoral but was legal and still is legal um, with home loans and then they their share price shot up because they were getting more home loans, more profits. And if you're if you're investing in the stock market and you see this bank's getting me $12 return, this one's only giving me $2 return, of course you invest in the guy with $12. So their price goes up and everyone invests in them. The other banks, in order to survive, have to say, we're going to do the same thing, otherwise we're going to go under as a bank. And then they all did the same immoral thing and then suddenly everyone's doing it. And then those profits are coming from the screws being tightened on ordinary investors, mm. either through the renters or through the home ownership. It becomes the real problem really for, for government regulators as well when trying to reel the banks in when they all start yep. copying each other going, oh, this is, this is what's expected. Like, for example, we're looking at um, the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates to try and make loans cheaper yes. for people so that they can have more disposable incomes they can live. But it you doesn't know. make it cheaper, does it? Well, no, it because doesn't. It's up to because the, because it's it's the banks the same, may yeah. or may not pass on yes. interest rate cut. And we've and we've seen all big four banks have not passed on the right. full rate cut. They won't do it. But even if they did, what if they did pass on the rate? What would happen is exactly what you mentioned before, which is people would then borrow more because they they think they can afford to borrow more, which makes them even more vulnerable when something shifts in the interest rates. Mm. Yeah. I saw in the paper the other day the claim that everyone should be buying more property because now with the situation with interest rates, it's about the same as, um, as buying property back in the 90s when things were much better. Yeah, I read that but as well. But the fact is that it's still overpriced property. So mm. you can buy a dump for a million dollars. I was going to say, did they look at dollars. the prices in the 90s? <laughs> yeah. But you can buy a dump for a million dollars. Yep. It's not worth a million dollars. That's right. So I'm just totally opposed to paying yep. more, paying the yep. the asking price for something that is not worth that much as well. I've seen a couple of financial studies of this. They say there's a there's actually a huge difference at the moment between what we're paying for properties and what it's materially worth to us That's right. in mm. terms of just a place to live yeah. it's a basic cost and we we simply can't meet continually meet this cost there's there's going to be a burst somewhere in the bubble somewhere but the trouble is is that because we're not only invested in property or in in terms of the society all of this bubble is also affecting um the stock market and the stock market, unfortunately, is where a lot of our super is tied up and all sorts of things. So almost everyone, everyone's got a finger in this particular pie and we're all kind of balancing, trying to get on top of this little jungle. But it's, And meanwhile, we see that people have no homes at all. Yes. And, and, and that seems to be increasing. I seem to see more and more people who do not have anywhere to go at all. Or let me put this situation to you. Because I have more than the average number of children, we went looking for a home because our landlord unjustly evicted us. Yes, I remember. And, mm -hmm. and I found out that I could challenge him, but the best I could do it in law is that he could then wait three months and then throw me out for another reason. And basically all I've done is put a black mark against my name and the next landlord doesn't want to touch me because I've had a legal case. So I just simply went, ah, oh, it's just not worth it and went looking for another house. And I have a reasonable wage. I'm very, you know, I'm compensated quite well. I'm not quite well. I'm not well enough to have a house in Sydney. Yeah, but, <laughs> but no I'm, one is. But I'm compensated. <laughs> so I, certainly, it's not an uh, not a small wage. And then I'm dealing. I, I have a perfect rental record. Thirty years I've been renting, and I've never lost a bond. I've never been late with the rental payment. And I say these things on the forms. I always get accepted when I put the application in, and then they find out how many children I have, yeah. and then they reject me. Now this happened thirty-five times when I applied for Whoa. a new house. Right? 
And they were, some of them were rental properties, which were quite nice. And, but it went right down to the point where even the property, which had a rusted fence, like literally rusted metal fence, um, the entire thing was actually should have been condemned. They still didn't give it to us. They gave it to the two, two child couple over there because the, because it's an investment mentality and the investments are being managed by real estate agents, their statistics say people with more children are likely to do more damage. There's more risk. The insurance companies won't insure them at the same rate. So basically they did always, always choose against that. Hmm. Even if I can say, look at my record, never once damaged the property, never once had bond, you know, challenged at all, always paid my rent on time. No. Nope. And they always went the other way. So it took actually a very good Catholic couple. Who yeah, it was a friend of a friend. A friend of a friend who, right. who now are friends, yeah. thankfully. And yeah. and they've been very generous in their, their uh, allowing us to live there. If we ever lose that situation, I'm I'm actually thinking we might have to buy a two-bedroom flat somewhere. And what, and kick and, out most of your kids? Well, and try and live there <laughs> with, that with 10 people in the house. It's just simply not going to work. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I know, and the reason I say that is I know someone with um with as many children as we have. And they had to buy a three-bedroom house on the absolute edge of Sydney, mm. just and squeeze ten people into the same house just to so that nobody could say you can't live here because you've got too many kids. Now it's still possible to live that way, but they because their their decision making in this capacity is purely financial, because it's only about the investment. The decisions simply don't take the human situation under into account, and. Admittedly, it's largely because, and most landlords have said this to my face when I've challenged them on it, they say, I have to pay a mortgage on this property. I can't take the risk. I can't take the risk of any kind of hit because my margins are so low that when I, you know, if something goes wrong, anything, even if there's a chance of something going wrong and the insurance company won't cover me because you've got too big a family, I'm stuffed. I'm literally going to have to sell everything and my investment goes in the tube and I've just wasted all that money that I've put in. Mm. So we've got, we've really identified, I think, a, a systemic issue. Yes. Then yeah. the, a systemic bias against, you know, people who want to have families and actually live and work in Sydney. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's because I, I like that you both seem to have been really lucky with, uh, you know, family connections or at least a human connection that's human able connection, to allow yeah. people to see past you know, what on paper, you know, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have let you through the door, yeah. but in, you know, yep. in, in the goodness of humanity, you're able to see, oh yeah, I can see a human being in front of me. Uh, uh, that of course changes, it completely reorients my perspective, yes. you know, and I, I just find that really interesting and fascinating that, you know, the, the whole way banks assess mortgages is you've got to literally put your life story in an application <laughs> That's format, right. but it's but it's through a financial lens though. No one cares yes. that you're the you could be citizen of the year and there's yes. like okay, but do you could you afford to pay off this amount of you know debt when interest rates go up to eight percent? Yes, which is currently how loans are assessed right yeah. now. Yeah, right. You know, so it's it's just an interesting you know uh, concept because we actually found that we got knocked back um, by one of the lenders that we were. Uh, seeking to get a loan from, uh, because they didn't like the fact that my wife had received maternity payment for like a six-week window of her previous financial year's tax wow. return. Yeah, so they that's almost a open and shut case of discrimination, isn't it? Yeah, well, practically speaking, but they but in the in the financial assessment they wanted to discount that all entirely, and when and it's like, look, it was a 
a few weeks of the financial year yeah. kind, of, kind of thing. And they were like, no, no, well, she's supposed to be self-employed uh, and she's not self-employed in this instance. Therefore, we can't consider her self-employed. Yeah. And then, which means we have to consider her as a pay-as-you-go, a pay-YG yeah. employee. And she's only got six weeks of that. So no, we can't consider your income at all. Wow. Sorry, we can't give you a loan. And I was just like, okay. That's fun. So I actually did the did the dodgy thing, which is uh, what uh, <laughs> many of us are now going to. And this is this, and this is one of the other risks because of the changing landscape of loans. The big four banks, or banks generally, any bank mm-hmm. that's got bricks and mortar, you know, uh, offices you can go to. Uh, less uh, and less these days. But less yes. and less these days, but they still exist. But they uh, cannot compete with uh, on several fronts. Uh, um, with online lenders, right? People who don't need to have branches, people who who can right. just uh, so, which means they can offer cheaper interest rates because they don't have as yes. many overheads. Uh, but they're and, also not paying people to be human to you. Well, that's the other consideration. However, mm. but, but when you are looking at securing your home, and a big bank has just gone nah because of some arbitrary reason, yes. and then a smaller, more boutique online lender has come and said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that'll be fine, because they're trying to raise as much of the debt as they can. Yes. Like I read that the, the lender that we've gone through is actually backed by another financial institution, right. which 100% of its financial assets, which is, is $10 billion, right, is all in mortgages. Right. Right now, if you have a, a property crisis where the, <laughs> where the interest rates go up, and no one can afford to pay these these homes back and everyone's just dumping their property on the market because we have to sell kind of thing, which triggers supply, interest rates go up, all that kind of stuff. Pandemonium, like this yes. is chaos. What happens to a financial institution like that? It just it folds. What happens to a, my loan? You know, it gets dumped. See, that's very interesting because in the States, we saw that in the mortgage crisis where they sold the debt. Mm. The debt got onsold and then onsold and then and then you get to less and less scrupulous people trying to collect that debt and then they put unscrupulous costs and charges on top of it. That's right. It multiplies. It's pre- it's a pretty big deal actually in terms of the the debt management. You, you talked a little bit about the morality of of the um, banks in this issue. I'd be interested to get your opinion on the morality of government. Hmm. both state and local, because we've witnessed and it became a big issue in the election just passed that uh, the overproduction of houses by developers was another factor shoving up costs and preventing people from entering into the market. It definitely is. But let's let's Hmm. start with the government side in terms of the development side. Sure. So there's different levels of government. So I think a huge part of the problem of democracy is that they're – the way the system is set up, because we have basically a, a popularity contest every four years, um, the system is set up to punish anybody who takes a policy decision that hurts within that four years. Mm. And and is, they've got to have a kind of a sweetener at the end of four years to make it work. So any policy which is going to hurt us a little bit now and have pay off good dividends down the track is discouraged because no one's brave enough to actually take the plunge because they're not going to be able to convince the average person this is a good thing for Australia if we do it this way. So they're terrified of dealing with the housing market. You saw what happened with um, the recent election where one of the parties actually mentioned we're going to talk about um, negative gearing. Pandemonium because the people who are already financially invested in that are going to take some pain if that. Could I just add that a lot of politicians are financially invested in this? So wasn't the Very it good. came out that one of the Greens uh, major <laughs> major le- leading um, light within the Greens party owned thirteen properties. Yes, Ooh. and we have people who are in, within federal government who yep. own 
four to six properties. Well, so we're talking about one person let's be owning fair that many properties. Balancing it. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull was an investment banker, wasn't he? Yeah. Isn't that problematic in some ways? Well, it's interesting. G.K. Chesterton has something to say about this. People mm. say, well, if you have rich people governing you, at least they can't get bribed. So if you have a he's some people in his time were saying if you get poor people into government they're vulnerable to someone exploiting them by giving mm. them a bribe and he says of course rich people can get bribed they've already got their bribe and their whole policies their whole policy structure is going to be based on preserving and protecting yeah. the the structure and the investment I just, I just think there's a huge conflict of interest with all of this so yes. the people who mm. are making the laws have a personal investment in nothing changing in the housing market because they are so fully involved in it and yes. so much is tied up in it they do not want it to change at all so let, let me come back to the biblical model if i can sorry the scripture scholar coming in uh, in the scriptures god is interested in the treatment of the rich over the poor because the poor is literally in a, the poor are literally in a situation where they are vulnerable to and actually need some kind of assistance. If you have people who are generally speaking better off, better educated, and usually coming from a similar bunch of schools, um, and have investment portfolios like you've um, just mentioned, Renee, um, who are making the rules, of course they're invested in keeping it the same way. But the scriptures actually challenge them to say. When you have these privileges, when you have this stuff, even if it's from hard work, it's an opportunity to serve those who need the leg up, those who... Yeah, see, this is where I agree with the scriptures, Peter. You may be surprised you, to know oh that goodness. I actually <laughs> agree with the scriptures on this point. Um, Pope Francis also said, I think fairly early in his pontificate, and this I took to heart as a bit of a hoarder because mm. I'm always afraid I'm going to run out of stuff. So <laughs> I was raised by lots of grandmothers who it's survived the, the Great thing, Depression. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, if you have something that you're not using and someone else can have, you're actually stealing from them. Yes. And that's that's what I see happening in the property market as well. Everyone has the right, I would argue, to own the place that they live in. Yeah, that right security, is not honoured yeah. in, our, in our society. Yeah, the security of a place to live. But going beyond that... And buying properties that you are then going to be making other people pay for, That's I don't the, see that as yeah. in any way justifiable. Oh, I have to disagree partly. Uh, and, and I'm going to say, I'll jump in here. Uh, everyone, just taking the line, everyone has the right to own the home that they live in. Not ev I will say that not everyone needs to or, ne or even should be owning the home that they live in for a variety of reasons. For example, a student might move to a new city. Uh, to study and they know that they're only going to be in that city for say a three-year period to study their undergraduate degree. It makes little sense for them to try and purchase a property or keep something as, you know, as difficult to unload as a property. You're talking is. about transitional. Yeah, yeah well, that's right. People who but I'm talking about families. Well, but that's right. But that's, yeah. not, but that's not everyone. You no, know? So that's right. we've got to be you know, qualified. Okay, that, so I'll take it back and say that if you're then? in a steady, if, if you're living in a certain place for, and you anticipate that you'll be living in that place for the next few decades, then the idea that you'll never be able to actually own the place that you're living in is, I don't think, um, very, it's not something that it's our society yeah, should no, be it's supporting. Huge, that, that's hugely problematic. But I'll say that, um, so the, the data's in that from the 2016 census data, for example, that um, it's basically split a third each way that a total of about 30% of the population owns their property outright, 30% rent. And more, a bit more than 30% own a home with a mortgage. And that's the basic, right? So we've got about a third of the population renting right now. If we drill down a little bit into the data, Mike, you jumped in and mentioned what does government do in its policy to kind of provide adequate accommodation. Um, and this is the case, and I'll outline it briefly, why 
unjust as property prices are, and I think we can all agree that the certainly in urban areas in, in Australia, especially the prices are exorbitant and they're just insane. They've got to come down. Something's got to happen. Uh, and a lot of that, as you mentioned, Peter, was driven by uh, a radical increase in investor loans. In fact, in the period of that spike, the property peak between 2013 and 2017 in Australia, where property prices jumped 55% in that window yep. um, in four years. is crazy, right? 60% of all new loans in that time by banks were to investors. Hmm. All right, so you've got a majority share of loans going to investors, which basically is what caused you know property inflation, people being given access to I think to that property. corresponded too to a, a dip in the profits coming from the share market. So mm. people were advised at the time, share market's not doing as well. You're not getting your bang for buck. Real estate's doing real well. Estate, and then, of yep. course, because they were buying in, suddenly real estate went up and they went, oh, look how well real estate's going. And everyone mm. jumped on. But now we're in a situation where someone's going to feel pain for it to correct. Mm. And there's going to be a lot of pain. And the trouble is that, and this is my problem, the people who are causing the pain by investing um, – are not going to be the ones who suffer the pain when it goes back the other way because there's a buffer zone. They might suffer a few profit losses, but they're not going to be the ones on the street. They're not going to be the ones struggling to find a place to live or living in substandard conditions because of their situation. Well, let's talk about who the property investors are because there are currently 2.25 million property investors in Australia. Right. That's a fair amount of people. Uh, but the overwhelming- Is that properties or individuals? No, 2.25 million investors, but right. um, I think there are investment loans currently out there. They may right. be split across multiple people. Um, more than 73%, is, I think the data is, of uh, of property investors in own one to max two investment properties. Right. And the overwhelming majority of these people are mum and dad investors. And they're all trying to look at ways to supplement for their retirement, whatever. They've been told, they've sat down with a financial planner and gone, we're trying to save extra money. How can we make it generate more income for us than sitting it in the bank and earning like a 2% return in a high interest savings account, whatever. And they go, well, the financial planner says, go and invest in property because you you can get the cash on cash return, which means you get the rental income as well as the the tax incentive through negative gearing, et cetera. Uh, And that's that's kind of the the majority case. Um, But- the the point I just wanted to make briefly about what property investors kind of do for those temporary lodges, you know, someone, a student, someone on military deployment, someone who's new in town, you know, yes, we had that yes, first we person, that we, we, first we talked one, about yep. that in that first podcast, which you can circle back to and have a listen to if you like. It's a really- <laughs> it's, it's, It was a good one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. fantastic because I wasn't on it. Um, <laughs> and, but, but yeah, but talk, but we, so you're know, getting a feel for a place, you might want to rent for six months to kind yep. of go, oh, I want to know, you know where the nice places are. What so as we said, transitional- That transitional yeah. kind of, so that temporary accommodation is essential. Uh, government social housing is pretty much the only alternative you have to mm. a private rental. And social housing accounts for less than 5% of all property available. Yes. Which means the overwhelming majority of property uh, that you can get into if you're one of those people that needs temporary accommodation sure. or if you're even saving for your own home, right? Yep. Because um, it is still, on average, cheaper to rent than it is to buy uh, in most places, then you need a property investor. Yes. You do. And that's just the, that's just the simple now, truth of the it, matter. That's if you're looking at the the numbers in terms of how to get ahead. So, and, and I I have actually looked into this in terms of investment properties because yep. I mean I in the moments of panic when I was literally looking at a caravan the next week, you know, kind of thing. Tiny homes are interesting. Let's talk about that in a bit. Caravans for a family of twelve are not interesting. Okay, point taken. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I'm saying, and, and this is what I'm saying, Cormac, we're not talking about 
you're, you're starting out investor or a student who walks in. I'm, I've been doing this for 30 years. Now, I'm not just talking about my situation. There's a few unique circumstances there mm-hmm. to do with, um, you know, the, the build-up of savings were interrupted by rather cataclysmic events in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I'm an academic, so it's not, <laughs> it's not <laughs> conducive to these things. But the, the point is, is that um, you're talking about people who, are, who have done all the right things, ticked all the right boxes, who, who just simply can't manage this market. If, come back to my earlier example, let's say you sat down with your investor and he says, look, there's a way to get ahead. Everyone needs water. Come on, everyone needs water. We all know that there's a market for water. So why don't we invest in purifying some water and selling it off? And, and there's a good market in this. There's still the issue there of the moral treatment of the consumer. In other words, the end user mm. and your relationship with that end user. And the whole, even when people are investing in property and they're doing it at arm's length, often through a real estate agent, et cetera, there's, there's a distance from, and the only interest they have in this and the reason they're into it is to build up their own investment properties so, for their own family, which is an admirable goal, but not if it's at the expense of the basic human rights of the people on the other end of the- And I'd agree with that yeah. completely. And that's where we can talk about like yeah. like property investment as a strategy for retirement, for example. Right. How many properties do you need to secure your retirement as an example of a legitimate goal? But what about the means? By what means can you build up your- your investment portfolio. Because if at any stage, in any part of that process, something is done immorally, like you've put immoral pressure on those people through the, the prices you've charged them because you're just simply passing on the bank's charges, Yes. then, then that, that becomes problematic in itself, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But so so what do we look at in terms of uh, a way to solve that problem? Because yeah. I, I think a lot of this is coming down to financial institutions and them deciding, you know, well, we can make a fortune off these people. Yes, you know, and they do. And, and they go and they <laughs> many, go many fortunes. Yes, so you know, and so, but you've got an individual who then goes. Well, I'm just. I guess I'm trying to put my my mind inside what a what a, a mum say a, a, a Catholic family sure. who are looking at. Okay, how do we build wealth? This is something that we'd certainly be looking at doing in sure. the long term. I'm actually a a disciple of the the barefoot investor who I'll do a shout out to at the end where oh, look out. <laughs> where, where I'm actually not pro property investment right. as a strategy for building wealth. I, it's certainly not in Australia and I'm not, uh, so I, we probably won't be doing that, but I want to go, I want to know, okay, I sit down, I'm the mum and dad investor. I, I want to build wealth. We, we're, we're told by a financial advisor who are paying a lot of money to, to get their advice from. He says, invest in property. Yeah. The market's down 20% in Sydney sure. at the moment. Um, it's cheap to buy loans right now, stocks are not good because the ASX, which is Australian Stock Exchange, is at an all-time high. Yep. That's a bad time to get in. You don't want to get in at the top. So like it makes sense, invest in property. And then you go, okay, well, I go to the bank, I get the loan. If um, the financial institution, if we've we've identified as being really culpable in, in terms of setting those systemic um, injustices up, what should I be thinking about in terms of looking at, say, getting a tenant, what can I do to kind of make sure that I'm respecting the humanity of my prospective tenant? Because I, I, you know, I might get, you know, a list of four or five applicants and one might be uh, a single person, might one of a couple that has a dog, and then you might have a family with seven children. Yep. You know, what's the, what's the humane thing? Because the way it's structured is that the, the landlord has little to no interaction yes. with the, you know, with the tenant. It's always done through an agent. It's always Not a degree of separation. It can be done through a private. In fact, there are a significant number of people who employ the agents just to find people yep. and then they and then manage they the situation it. themselves. Well, is that the way forward? So that, that's what I'm asking. What's the thing that, well, certainly that a Catholic investor would want to do to make sure that, 
okay, I'm trying to make sure that I'm meeting the needs of the cost of the loan for me, sure. but at the same time not imposing if if we can establish to, that Catholic social teaching says that it is an unjust thing to impose the burden or pass on the cost of the burden of the mortgage in full to a tenant potentially. What, what should I be thinking through? Uh, look, I, I, the trouble is that passing on the cost – there's an assumption there that it's a necessary part of the the, the equation. Yeah, that's right. And the assumption is because the bank demands it, therefore the only moral issue is is whether I bear that or the the uh, the end user wears it. In fact, the immorality started probably even before the bank, if I can be fair to the banks. It, you can't be a bank in Australia and not do this stuff hmm. because if you charge less interest rate, you just plummet on the stock market and that's really bad news for all of their profits and all of their markets. So the system we have set up is designed to do this to us. Can I, perhaps can I try a, a, something a bit more radical? Sure. In one of my classes, I actually um, tell the students, this is across the whole university, so we've got business students, law students, everyone else in there, and I tell the students, in Israel, by the, the law of God in the Torah, every debt was forgiven as in wiped clean every seven years. The business students go nuts over this. They, and the law they, students. They melt down. Yeah. And, and I say, imagine <laughs> just as a thought experiment, imagine <laughs> what, what's, would what would happen in Sydney if every seven years, and it's not just seven years that were determined at the start of the deal, mm. every seven years, as in 2020, every debt is wiped out. So, and in those situations, slaves were debt related. So yep. any mortgage, anything is stopped. What would happen? And the first thing after the business students were revived from the floor and you know, given a CPR. <laughs> we have a CPR unit on standby for this one. Basically, they say the banks wouldn't be able to lend us as much money. Housing prices would plummet. It's be already because sounding you fantastic. Could, you could only yeah. you could only buy what you could lend within the seven years, and there'd be a glut of purchases right on the seven-year mark because then they could milk the seven years, etc. And then I said, well. And the other thing is that at 49 years, so the seven sevens, yep. all property reverts to its original owner, um, <laughs> which would be problematic for us for the indigenous people. Right. <laughs> so, but the point is, is that- Which already says something, by the way. Yeah. It, which yeah. is a really interesting thing. That the, the whole, the seven-year debt thing, in other words, you're basically setting up a situation where it's still possible to give people a leg up financially. And a rich person can, in fact, make a modest little profit out of it, you know, a, up to a seven-year loan or something. Uh, and he can still help out and there's still financial stuff, but nobody can ever be bound in such a way that it makes it, you know, a, a sort of a, basically a lifelong indebtedness. In fact, just in terms of ancient slavery, the whole being sold into slavery to pay off a debt and then buying yourself back out of slavery, not like the modern understanding of slavery, it was a system, an economic system in the ancient world. And the closest thing we have to it in the modern life is a mortgage. Hmm. that you, you literally give most of your life over and almost all of your earnings over to to paying someone. And when you calculate this, um, this is getting a little bit aside, but when you calculate how much you pay in interest as versus how much you actually pay towards your house. I've done the numbers. It's Ooh. an obscene amount of money that you're paying just for the privilege of having had the cash up front. Um, and then when the, when those students hear this, they just it's it's like we our minds explode. We can't even comprehend what society would be like if we weren't being systemically exploited by people with lots of money. And then you ask them, would society survive? Would any one of our basic needs not be met anymore? Everything would still be going along. You still have all the human needs. You'd still have all the things. The only thing that would change is the exploitation itself. 
But would it though? Because this is what I'm trying to wonder. Didn't a business student, would, would anyone hypothesize that the banks themselves would just collapse? Let's say that because banks, for example, have 65% of their leverage is, is, is in property. Sure. Right. So if you just say that all debt, like I'm just wondering how the system works. So you get to seven years, is the debt forgiven or do you have to pay back the debt in full, but no interest? Like what's the deal? Cormac, you're talking to the wrong guy because I am so not interested in defending the system. Let it all burn. <laughs> <laughs> Can I um, interject there? I like it that you keep on bringing it back to scripture, Peter, because I worry. It, it really struck me when I came to Sydney. So there's a joke for Sydney siders that how long does a conversation take before it turns to whether to or not you get yeah, to property? <laughs> yes. um, and I'm what I worry sure. about with all of this exploitation and all of this emphasis on property, so it's really difficult, I find, kind of spiritually speaking as a as a mum of four kids with a wonderful husband, um, to try to find the right balance. Because, yes, we want our families to be cared for and we need to think about wealth in that respect. But if the moment we start obsessing about wealth so that everything becomes about owning that house, so that, so sure. that, so that, so that, yeah. then I think other problems arise. So yep. for us it's really a choice between, um, so we have overseas family, we could put everything that we have into trying to invest in a property that's completely overpriced sure. and, you know, all of that kind of thing. We could do that, but that would mean that my children would not know their grandparents, mm -hmm. that we could not put them in the schools that we want to, that my, I could live, we could live much further out and buy something, which I know a lot of families are being able, able to, you yeah, know, like are being us. forced to do that. We went all the that's way right. to the Blue Mountains. But then I would not see my children first thing in the morning yes. and last mm. thing at night. So there are actually yep. all of these things that are far more worth it to us in the end yep. than actually owning the property. Mm. Um, and we talked about work-life balance in our previous that's episode. That's right. And I and think this that is would part be of severely it. affected. I that's think right. it is because people I'd, are terrified of making big decisions about right. family because they're, they're terrified of losing their job yeah. and therefore the mortgage. And, yeah, yeah, and, and I'll and, jump in and yeah, weigh in that just, just, just very quickly, Renee, yeah. that just from personal experience, that was kind of the, the decision. You, you you make the decision based on, well, how far can, are we prepared to go out before the prices start That's getting right. into a range and then how long does then that add to my commute? And what, right. what is the cost, yes. I guess, of that In of that human cost. In yeah. human terms. So I'm deprived of that yes. extra hour of family time or And your whatever. family are deprived of you. That's right. And so, but then you get a, yeah. And so it's a really difficult thing. And we wrestled with this for a long time before we bought. And even then it's, it's still, it's very much a compromise in, yeah. in, in that yeah. we bought. It's no, there's no, certainly in Sydney, there is just no happy medium and there's, you can't have it always. Yeah. No. Like there's just no, absolutely zero way you can actually do that. However, the community that we bought into in the Low Blue Mountains has all kinds of living and lifestyle um, advantages and, yeah. that it, it, it works, you yeah. know, because there's, sure. a, there's a great network of young Catholic families there. There's fantastic schools not too far away. Yeah. Uh, so, and there's, we can see it as a long-term play. Yeah, and yeah. also the livability, by the way, I look into Sydney, I can see it, you know, kind of down the mountain <laughs> and you're like, I cannot see the city because oh. of the thick blanket of smog that's there yeah. every morning. And come and breathe the free air, my friends. You know, like <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, someone might start, oh, I can clean the air and charge people to breathe. You know, that might be the best, the next investment strategy for someone. Oh, well, but, I'm sure. Well, and that's the other thing. The other thing is kind of peace of mind in another kind of way, because yes, we're paying rent all the time um, to someone who's very good to us really mm. in the long run. But if we, if life intervened, which it often does, and something happens, it's not as though the bank is going to forgive me a loan. No. 
it's uh, there's a kind of servitude there to a financial institution, yes. which mm. I find quite frightening and the, in ways that I don't find frightening when I'm paying rent every every week with the idea that, I mean, with international families as well, and not everyone has this, um, if for some reason we needed to leave Australia yep. and we owned property, that's just going to be really messy. Yes. Whereas if I say to my landlady, well, I'm sorry, but we, we need to move, yep. that's going to be doable. So I think every family situation, every personal situation is going to be different in yep. terms of mm. property as But well. the, choice, the choice is the key factor there. Now, I, I, personally, yeah. just to be clear, I've been fairly bullish against uh, ditching homeloads. I think actually the ability to access finance is, is an important thing and mm. I'm not against that. What I'm against is the mentality which is focused purely on the financial outcome of these investments. So the people at the end of the thing, the people living in the house are either the ones suffering directly from the exploitative behaviour um, of investors, like someone who's invested money in them in a mortgage, or I'm paying enough rent so that my landlord can pay back those in those mm. um, amounts. Now, f we're thinking about wealth from the point of view of the the, the victims or the, or the small fry. And when you get to the top level, they'll just say, that's not the way it works. Because if we do it, as you said, if we do it this way, the whole thing will collapse. The whole system will collapse. We've built a system then that systematically exploits the most vulnerable. We've literally got a system that takes all of our basic needs and screws us as hard as possible to milk us of every bit of cash we've got so that we come out, just barely come out at the other end with, with you know, our head above water. Mm. And if they've done that, then they've successfully, where do all these profits go? They're going off to the investment, um, you know, the top however many percent of Australia. Sometimes might be in my super or might be in something else. And that's something I need to answer ethically. Um, and how that's invested, but well, yeah, because that's what I, I want to ask. There's two things there. Well, one, are we are we are you saying that it's fundamentally unjust to charge interest on a loan? Because one of one consideration I might add to that is the is inflation, uh, and that in real terms the value of your dollars goes down as inflation right. rises. So is it at bare minimum not a reasonable thing for a financial institution to lend money at least? going at the level of inflation so that the money that they're recuperating is the same. There is a Catholic argument for that. There is a Catholic argument for recouping of genuine costs associated with providing of a financial service. But then there's a second consideration I want to throw in there, which might justify at least a small amount of interest charge because I'm not wholly against the idea that because mm -hmm. there's all this like peer-to-peer -peer lending is now just taken off because we have a, we have a real debt problem. We have $45 billion of credit card debt in Australia floating around right now and it is in, like it is so horrible. It's one of the debt traps of credit cards. You just don't touch them if you can help it. Yep. But uh, that said... So that, that, the man who's just taken a mortgage. <laughs> not a How is yeah. it different? <laughs> so. Tell me. Explain it to me. How is it different? What, wait, how is what different? <laughs> I'm, I'm well, you're in, you're in debt to the bank and someone who uses their credit card becomes in debt to the bank as well. well so what is the difference? You can... Well, be, primarily yeah. the interest rate that you pay on credit card debt versus a mortgage. Yeah. Right. So a credit card debt would be something in the order of 185 to 20%, mm. right, which is insane. Which is why I've never had a credit yeah, card. Yeah, but no, that's like, fine. Yeah. And you can get yeah. credit cards that do like 55 day interest-free periods of mm. things. Like, and they're, yeah. they're the things that are fine. You, you never, ever want to pay interest on, on a credit card yeah, because right. they charge. And that's what I would say is a real target for yep. unjust exploitation because it's primarily young people and people who develop bad financial habits early on. That's right. I would say to, pro, take, yeah. to argue from Cormac's argument here, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure I want to line up with you on this one, but, no, no, but to anyway, argue from but, your point, yeah. 
a mortgage is a very involved process and, mm. and the conditions of the mortgage are very clearly laid out and there's a limit on how much, you know, there's a very clear limit on what you get and how much you pay back. And there's lots but, of forward planning involved. Yeah. Right? Mm. Whereas yeah. a credit card is just, here's a card, knock yourself out until we come knocking for the for the money. And and we don't update you on anything that's going on. And yes. sure. And you know yes. what? Because you're such a valued member, we've upped your limit from four thousand to fifteen thousand dollars. I keep getting us. letters and if I kept if I kept saying yes to them all, I would have enough to, you know, buy a reasonably good new car. But I've I've said no to all of the ones because no, I don't need that limit. Mm. But people would do it all the time. Yeah, so, so then that's what I'm talking about in terms of the level of is it reasonable? Say so, say if I'm a I'm a lender, so I've got a bit of extra cash, you know. You really need you, your car's broken down. You really need a new sure. car, and you're happy to buy a bomb, so you'll borrow five thousand dollars off me. Yep. Now, it's I've got the cash. I was going to use it, but I'm like, oh, Peter probably needs it. So mm. here, Peter, you have five thousand uh, dollars. Can you please pay me back um, at the at the level of inflation with ever what you can? Okay. Is it an unjust thing for me to say? But because I'm now deprived of having the cash to invest myself in something else and I don't get the return of that, yep. could would you agree to pay on top of that 1% interest? Look, I think it's a more just thing than the banks are doing, but I would still think we're still only measuring it in terms of dollar value. So mm. in the Jewish system, this, I mean, when I say Jewish, I should be quite clear here. I'm talking about what the Old way Testament. I interpret the Torah, not, not, the, not the modern Jewish system. But as far as I can tell, the issue was that they're investing in a nation. They're investing in the people, right? So when someone who's rich sees someone who's poor, he might just give him the investment it takes. And by the way, when they talked about land and land ownership in the in the in the scriptures, they're not just talking about a place to live. Land is their job, their way of making a living. So their their business, if you like. So mm. they're talking about the whole package of work and home. Um, and basically, if a rich man sets up a poor man in his in his village. He's not asking. He might ask you ask for a small amount of interest, but generally speaking, that's not the outcome that he's looking for. The outcome he's looking for is that now he's got a function, a, a beautiful contributing member of the the family and of the society sitting right beside him, which means that this entire village then is a thriving place. And then that guy turns up to his shop the next time around, and you know everyone else turns. In other words, the whole of the nation is built up, not necessarily. Um, getting direct, like no accountant would be happy with this because it's not direct profit mm. for for expenditure stuff, but the entire nation of Israel flourished where other nations, which were the kill or be kill kind of financial stuff, so the rich people got more rich. And you know, if you happen to be very clever in the market, you might get to the top, but most people are just the exploited sort of underclass. Well, I think this brings us back to a principle within Catholic thought more generally, which has philosophical and theological implications. And that is that there's a difference between a transactional arrangement and a yes. covenantal okay. understanding yeah. or a gift economy and an economy that's only based on purely transactional justice. Could you so un- think, explain that yeah, a little bit more? So within the Christian Catholic understanding, we have a, we have a um, not only a model, but a, our, our saviour, the second person of the Trinity, when I get into all of that, um, so who is completely self-giving. And, and right. when you look at the Beatitudes- Yeah, what was Jesus' return for investment, really? I know. Well, when you look at the Beatitudes as well, um, who are the ones who who are truly blessed? They are the poor. They're right. the poor in spirit. So for all of this emphasis on wealth, as which is something that we take from the society around us, I yep. think we have to keep a self-questioning going on as Catholics and, and say, well- you know, there's a, uh, I said to a friend the other day, I'm, in this particular situation, what I'm trying to do 
is to be generous but not be taken for a ride. Ooh. So it's that whole be innocent as serpent. Uh, yes. Sorry, innocent as doves. <laughs> maybe you want to you want to cut that one. You need to be as um, as cunning as serpents, but as innocent as doves. So be giving, be generous. Yep. But then make sure that there isn't some. Um, so I suppose the, that, that the your gift is not be, misused. Yeah, so that it's not misused because if you allow yourself to be misused, then you're actually a kind of occasion of sin, if I can put it that way, for yeah. the other person. So it's not um, so much about protecting yourself in that situation. It's about protecting the misuse of your gift, so it hurts them and other. Yeah, people. that's right. That's right. So that's a, that's something that I'm quite wary of. When I know that there are, um, it's it's one of those. Catholics are called upon, I think, I think Christians are called upon to always be asking the difficult questions and yes. to be countercultural. Yep. So if everyone else is going down the property investment line, mm. then I think that we at least need to ask some pretty hard questions about where that's all leading. And I think that's what we've been doing in this I podcast. Think, yeah, we have. But we do need to come back to that understanding of generosity as being the primary that's, motivator that's rather the point than- I'm getting at. So, yeah. so I am, I mean, even in spite of the fact I've been doing a lot of whining about property prices, and I admit that it's been- you know, a little bit of well, angst in there. Well, 32 rejections, I think. Yeah. You know, you're wow. in, you know, yeah. 35, yeah. yeah, yeah. But having said that, sorry. I am reasonably well off in, in other ways, right? So I, I looked at this sort of one of those charts that says that if you took the whole population of the world and made it 100 people, 1% of them would have a car, right? 1% would have a computer. 1% would, you know, all these sorts of things, right? Mm. I have two cars. Like they're, they're only, I mean, I've five grand for one of them, but you know, it's not a huge cut, but it's, I have two cars. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's an astounding thing that puts yeah. me in the top 1% in the world. Right. And yet I'm, because of the, how many You're children I have, I, ha- I hover, <laughs> I hover near the poverty line of Australia yeah, because of right. how many children I have, they, the way they calculate things. Right. Yeah. It's an amazing data dive actually. And it's the, the, the most stark difference for that you can find by going to the United States where a lot of the, the numbers they like to throw out is, uh, if you calculate the average income for all of Americans, which is calculated by taking the total amount of income in, in the United States, yes. dividing it by the working population and getting your number, yep. which is so, it ends up being something like in the mid 60,000s or something like yes. that. Is, 62, in fact, OECD. Yeah. I, oh, there you the go. Stats. But the relevant number is not the average income, but the median income, yes. which yeah. is your line up from yeah. youngest to all, or, or earning yep. the least to earning the most in the United States. What's the middle score? Yes. And it's... I cannot remember what it is, but it is radically lower. Yes. It is so- I think it's in the 30s. It's like, it's like it, yeah, it could be the 30s. It's, yeah. it's drastically yeah. low. It might even be less. Yep. And they worked out in, in that same set of stats, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they actually worked out how much you need to, uh, and this is the Catholic definition, through prudent living and frugal, you know, frugal saving over a period of, say, a, a decade or two, that someone could afford land- as in a place to be secure and live and maybe a business, the number that you would require was in the uh, well above 60, but the number they were getting was less than half of that. Mm. So they literally have a situation where where the the median uh, living arrangement in all of the states simply doesn't get even half to the level that you need in order to meet basic human rights requirements in terms of the Catholic understanding of the human rights. Now, that's to do with families. Now, one of the questions we haven't raised here and probably should be raised is the the double working family. And when you've got, and I think this is a massive deal because I'm talking to to lots of people about having kids and when they can have kids and, and, and being involved in workplaces and stuff. And most of them say they would have more children if they could afford it. 
and mostly it's about they're terrified of not not being not able to, being able to work. Yeah. But it's not, you've been, no, you're right. It's that point about not just about being able to provide, but specifically taking one parent out of the workforce. Yes. And I mean, and it's, and it's, you know, shout out to anyone who's in the same boat as us that we are trying to juggle, um, the two, the double income kind yeah. of thing. I mean, not, not only just because of the, the advantage of the extra money, but because I think that my wife enjoys her work and I try my best to try and make accommodations for her to keep going back into it, even though she loves being a mum and it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reality is that the more children that come along with the less flexibility we have, like we're currently expecting our third child. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, fun fact, my wife is currently overdue. So <laughs> if I get a phone call in the middle of this and run out, you'll know it's probably to the hospital. Uh, and it's, it's a real grapple and it's actually a mental struggle that I kind of anguish over. And you're yes. talking about what does the mortgage take away from your life? Yes. You know, what are the, what is it? The, we, if in economic terms, what's the opportunity cost? And also you know? not just in terms of the, the struggle to survive, you've got someone like Steve Bidolf who wrote the book on manhood and he's a completely secular guy and he's talking about just what affects manhood. Now this of course affects women, but he's writing about men. He said about mortgages that basically he described this metaphorically as a man walks into the bank manager's office and he leaves a testicle in there. And so when he's out there in his business and when he's doing his thing and he comes to What's that- What's the rating of this podcast? <laughs> it's MA. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just checking. Come on, this is basic anatomy, kids, come on. <laughs> basically what, what he's saying, and this is Steve Bidolf's own analogy, he says when it comes to that really hard decision and he has to make the decision about make, whether to take that risk in business or choose the new job or, or step out on a limb, because he's got the mortgage sort of hanging over him, he just doesn't quite have that extra sort of oomph to sort of make the hard call, to, to, to take the risk. Or, and maybe that's a good or bad thing, but basically what he's saying is there's a, there's a constant sort of um, weight in terms of which is not proper to uh, an ordinary situation because a man's always, and a woman, are always concerned about the welfare of their family, always. But this is, this is an, a, an oppressive kind of weight on the whole top of it. The, the sheer weight of numbers in mortgages these days oh. is insane. It's the thing that like scares me because yeah, everyone's like, oh, again, it, it is. And it is, I can attest to that because yeah, my wife, she's just like, we own a home. It's fantastic. We love it. And I'm there going, the bank. I own, I, I own my <laughs> the life bank. The bank owns me. Yes. So, okay, I've got a, what are the strategies? And I sit down, I go hard at the numbers and I go, okay, yep. what can I you know, put away and what are the strategies you can put in place? And that's sure. always on my mind. Yeah. And it was through the whole, it was the whole purchasing process. You know, my wife, she's like, it's so good. You know, we're going to have such a great time. Yes. We can make it ours, that kind of thing. And I'm there going, and how much does that cost? Okay. Yes. All right. Write it down. <laughs> how much longer do I have to work? What yeah. side hustle are we going to establish? Yes. Which kidney do I need less? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, look, look, let's come back to this. The final question, we have to wrap this up soon, is what can we do about it as Catholics? Now, Cormac's raised some very good, even though I've been having needling him all the time, he's raised some very good questions about what practical things we can do. I think there's a moral problem with investing in the property market because you're basically reinvesting in the very thing you're trying to escape in. There's in the whole system. But that's that's my opinion. It's not. I'm not trying to say that's the whole Catholic world. Mm. As Catholics, one of the things that we're noticing these days is that Catholics have. When uh, Monica Duman, I think, did the article on where does Catholic wealth go, because someone accused the Catholics of being very wealthy. Actually, most of our wealth is tied up in real estate, as in mm. there's church buildings, there's charities, there's all kinds of things. And what's happening more and more now is that as religious orders, you know, move to different sorts of arrangements, different sort of missions, there's a lot of land. That is like oh, what, out of those thirty-five houses. By the way, 
four of them were actually ex-convents hmm. that my, my family applied for, right? Yeah. And because it was managed by a real estate agent, it did not matter one jot that we were Catholics, the big family, attempting to live like to seek out it because I thought maybe they'll think of us differently because yeah of that. and that's but that's one of the huge opportunities I think that parishes can just jump onto because there are yeah. now a lot of them very very land wealthy as you yep. mentioned uh, I I do know of parish priests who are trying to put things in place where they've got vacant convents or yes. properties on their land they go even I building would investments like, yeah I would like an arrangement where I could get a large Catholic established Catholic yep. family to live in this property heavily subsidised the rent would be very reasonable and they would contribute to the life and of my parish that's, that's exactly right. right it's self interest you can suddenly just, get a, a Family, in our case, a family of ten people yeah. who show up to mass regularly, who contribute, uh, if they'll let me, uh, yeah. in all sorts of ways, and basically you have a situation where everybody wins. And if you, if if we're genuine about community too, as Catholics, you could actually, I mean, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but I know of at least two different groups who are meeting regularly to discuss what to do about moving to one area away from Sydney as a community, and you know. Corporately using their joint buying power, if mm. you like, to to set up a situation where it's much more possible, and there and then creating a situation where it's possible for them to live. It's not going to work for us. Um, we have a child with special needs, so it's mm. never going to work that way. Um, and there are other issues, but the point is, is that as Catholics, we have the capacity to do it. Well, why don't we put some Catholic agencies on notice? I am connected enough to different Catholic organisations to be aware that there are a number of vacant Catholic properties unused with long-term plans marked against Mm -hmm. them sometimes for five years down the road, sometimes for 10, Mm -hmm. sometimes more. Get a Catholic family in them Mm. while you're not doing anything with it. Yeah, so a Catholic family or something like the Frasati community, so where you have young people who are earnestly trying to lead um, a good single life as they're studying and doing other things and they want to do that in community. So I know that families feel the pinch, but there are a lot of young single people out there who could really do with a lot of help Well, I'll give a a shout out to them if I can, Peter. Part of the work that we've done is in collaboration with some of the agencies here at the Archdiocese is open very recently a discernment house for men. Right. It's called Sumner House and it's based at the parish at Lidcombe. Right. Uh, and uh, it's a it's very close to this train station, highly accessible to the city. Uh, and it's designed as a house of formation Great. for men, whether they're studying or working, uh, so that they can discern for a year or a period of up to 18 months what it is they want to do with their life vocationally. Right. Do they want to get married? Do they want to enter the priesthood kind of thing? Or yeah. To have a clear understanding of who they are as men in that period, there will be a, a chaplain, there will be a regular formation, there's a chapel, uh, they'll be involved in the pastoral care of the parish, they'll be involved in youth groups and retreats, yep. uh, they'll be paying, I can even d- disclose, the, the the rent is $180 a week, uh, <laughs> yeah, which is very heavily subsidised yes. and there's also lots of support from the parish. And that is one initiative, I will say, that the Archdiocese of Sydney is really yep. trying to advance on. And in the pipeline, maybe I can, can't say, there is effort to open a similar one for for, for women as well. I won't disclose the property because it's a bit of a war. I've actually had experience with property this. Property war? Who knew? <laughs> I had experience with this because when I moved into to the city from the country first, it was, it was the Lutherans who literally bought about three houses in the area. This one parish bought three houses just out because they had the they had the means at the time and they used those houses for kids who were moving from the country just to sort of give them a like a for temporary a, could, accommodation temporary yeah. accommodation so they could stay there a year before they found their own accommodation and they had one person one couple or person living there um, as a kind of a manager of the house and that manager then obviously got the house you know as part of their job but 
they involved them in the church. And that's how I actually mm. got really involved, very deeply involved in the Lutheran church in the first place, because there was that kind of connection. And frankly, Catholic missionaries have always gone to a place, looked at the need, supplied the need, and then said, when people said, why are you doing this? Well, there was that, a need. There was a need, mm. and we do that because Haven't of we our. Lost a little bit ex- of that. I, don't we know. Have, I just get the sense that yeah. there's just it's, it's quite corporate and quite well. What's what's the economic benefit? That's I right. mean, yep. even I will say in this narrative of trying to set up the Sumner House at Lidcombe, there was the part of the application process to even convince a few people to get on board was, well, what's the economic value of yeah, us giving right. you of a place? You and know. that's what I was talking about with covenant and generosity versus the transactional, yeah. more secularized approach. So the Catholic yeah. mentality we've got to have. I think yeah. so. And, and look, to it, let's, let's put it flat. It's all very well to say they should do something, like someone else should do something. Let's come back to finish up the podcast with this, what Renee's point was about generosity. I happen to be blessed with a property at the moment. It's not not ours, but we rent it. It has a swimming pool. We have therefore opened it to as many people as we can possibly you know, invite, even when it's slightly inconvenient to us, because it's a pool. I wish I had a pool all those other years when it was hot. Bring people in. I've got two cars. If I'm not using them at the time and someone needs a lift, okay, I can jump in the car and give them a lift. Uh, in- can I tell a little story about that? Go ahead. We had our old car broke down significantly and like half an hour before it broke down, a friend sent me a message and said, I've been thinking that I don't walk enough. So I'm not going to use my car during the week. Do you want to use our car during the, uh, my car during the week? Single, lovely Catholic woman. Wow. And I was on the verge of writing back to say, oh, that's so nice, but I just don't think that we would need it. And then our car broke down. (laughs) So so we were able to get the kids back and forth to school. Like there is, there are always so many possibilities of generosity. Someone Mm. said to me that our guardian angels must have had a thing going. Like one whispered to the other, their car's just about to break down. Quick, offer yours. And and it was amazing and beautiful. to have a podcast on providence because i have yeah. so many stories of people's generosity change yeah. like and it, to it's them it was a small amount but yeah. it can be life-changing Absolutely. yeah so be yeah. A, the the whole message of this i think is to be as generous as is possible and also to take care into this the arrangements that we put ourselves into that they still allow us with enough flexibility to be generous in some ways yeah, yeah I agree. To, 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 yeah. In, in other words that, Clearly, we're not claiming here to represent Catholic morality on either of any of our opinions. We're just simply saying it's probably a good thing to aim to be generous, to give ourselves the, the capacity and space to be generous with our time, uh, with our assets, but also um, with the, the the way we deal with other people. It's time now for a segment we call One Minute Wonder after all that sort of <laughs> ratbaggery. <laughs> yeah, we'll so I'll, I'll make you lead off, Comac. Yeah, I can go first this time. Well, in our in our last podcast, we, uh, we talked about, uh, you know, that I talked about anyway, this, this sense of wonder that you can have when stargazing. And I like to walk the the kids to sleep in the pram and I can look up at the stars on one particular occasion. I was walking and I was looking at the stars and I just found myself contemplating that I could not put my amazement at looking at the depth of stars. You know, you look at stars and then the, the longer you look, the more that appear. Yes. You, you're yeah. just like, and and the, the, the reality that, that I find incredible when looking at stars is when you're looking at a star, you're looking at it a hundred years ago. Wow. Because the time that takes the light to travel to your, hit your eyes, you're actually seeing the, the star, this whole space time thing. And that, and yep. that just made me something about the depth between, you know, <laughs> here and the star. Anyway, and I just, that sense of wonder, it just struck me. I cannot put this into words how um, there is just a moment. There is just an experience between me and looking into just something that I cannot fully comprehend. And it just astounds me. 
marveling that I could be alive, this tiny, tiny little size of me and the size of the universe. I'm like, I exist. And that is all I can think. And I cannot say anything more about that. It just had me then going on about the limits of speech and expressing <laughs> realities. But, but that was the thing I was just marveling at. Good. That's what that, now, now I've got more to think about. Mm. Renee. Well, Aristotle thought that philosophy began when people had leisure. That ties mm. into our last podcast as well, the leisure to look at the stars. Yeah. They had all of their material needs taken care of. And so they could look up at the stars. So that kind of ties into what we were just talking about as well. My moment of wonder, I've been reading to the kids and when I'm not at home at bedtime, my husband picks up the book for me. We've been reading through... Um, the Lord of the Rings. Oh. Um, so we're in two towers now. And it's funny because when I first read it, everything was about Gandalf. That was when I was, I don't know, 20. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I was 20 before I read The Lord of the Rings, but there you have it. Um, so everything was about Gandalf and I was very focused on that. This time it's been about Aragorn. And so I've just been sort of wondering at the figure of Aragorn, I suppose watching him actually hesitating in certain moments, but this real theme of hope. Mm. I keep on picking it up. There, there might be a paper in there somewhere, I'm not sure. But anyway, <laughs> at the moment I'm enjoying the wonder because, the, because he, he, he keeps on saying, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. And then there's one moment where he says, maybe there's actually no cause for hope. And you're like, oh, <laughs> don't you give up hope because then everyone will. This yeah. is terrible. You're so the instead hope of this, guy. this, yeah, you're the hope guy. So this, um, this beautiful figure of, um, of, of hope and of leadership through hope, but someone who is actually capable of taking on board a situation and of appraising it and seeing how it is that he can offer strength to others while really struggling in the situation himself. Mm. That's really struck me in this particular reading of Lord of the Rings. So wonderful. great. This is my shout out. J.R.R. Tolkien, you rock. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've just been asked to read uh, that one again, actually. I've been through twice with my children yeah. so far and it's so much fun. Oh, and it's so great to read out loud. Oh, and the voices. Yes. Yeah. Every my kids complain that every time that I, I do it, uh, that certain voices change, and because I can't remember. <laughs> I know, I just, is this my I'm Gimli still, voice or I'm not? Still I'm stuck in sure. Harry McClary, so I'm looking forward to graduating. You'll get there, man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to this Catholic Life. <laughs>